You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Friends, on the, uh, the southern coast of Ghana, there's a, a large pearly white building. It sits just elevated above the Gulf of Guinea, where the blue waves crash in. And this building is surrounded by palm trees. It's called Elmina Castle. It was uh, constructed in the 15th century by Europeans. And it's actually the oldest European building in existence south of the Sahara Desert on planet Earth. Really fascinating. But this castle wasn't home when it was used to romantic tales of princesses, as we often think of castles, or gigantic feasts from kings. This castle was used for the express purpose of imprisoning thousands of African slaves. Before, they were packed like sardines onto ships and sent across the oceans to the Americas or to Europe. And if you visit Elmina Castle today, you can see the terrible conditions for yourself. Slaves were housed in dungeons like this one, in the lowest, dampest, darkest parts of the castle. There were no toilets back in the day, and these are still the original floors, so you can quite literally smell the horror of life here. And there were also cells of solitary confinement. So if a slave resisted in any way, they'd be placed here. They wouldn't be given any food or water until they died. That's why there's a skull and crossbones above the doorway. But these sickening dungeons aren't the only rooms in the castle. If you ascend the stairway directly upward from here, you'll find what had formerly been another shocking location. Directly above the slave quarters, literally built on their ceilings, sat a Christian chapel. It's there that the Europeans responsible for managing and enforcing the slave trade would gather together for their religious practices. It's there that they sang songs directly above the people that they were egregiously harming. They prayed prayers to God while stepping on the image of God bearers beneath them. They walked into the religious space, did all of their great religious practices, and walked out to commit heinous evil upon their fellow humans. Friends, sometimes religion can be deceptive to us. Sometimes it can serve as a tool for creating a sense of self-satisfaction. Look at how great we are for showing up. Sometimes it can give us blinders to the true love and justice and mercy of God. And sometimes it can be used to justify heinous evil. Sometimes our religion is the greatest obstacle to true faith in God. Because worship without justice is not worship. We're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown called When Things Fall Apart. We're reading from the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was speaking at a time when A lot of things were falling apart. The political establishment and the religious establishment, they were corrupt, and, well, he was calling them out at that time in a variety of ways. And his words speak to us in a time when it sometimes feels like things are falling apart today. He speaks on how to navigate this as people who follow a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of justice. And so would you open your Bibles with me today to Jeremiah chapter 7. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through 11 in chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'd love to get you one. Let me know after service, and we'll get you one for free. It's on us. We want you to be able to read with us on Sundays and on your own time. Uh, the words are going to be behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along as well. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. 
and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings. Let me dwell with you in this place. Don't trust in these deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. But here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're safe, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I, too, am watching, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine in the next couple months, you're waking up on a delightful fall morning in Phoenix and the sun isn't quite peeking through your windows to fully wake you up. So you hit your snooze button a couple times as many of us do. And as your brain is starting to wake up, you remember it's Sunday, which means there's a worship gathering happening here at Midtown. And so you start to do the church math in your head. We all know the church math. Do I go? Do I not go? Well, if I go, these things I have to do. Right? I have to get ready. I've got to put on an outfit. I've got to get the kids together. I've got to get us all piled in the car. I've got to get there on time. And I know I'm going to need my coffee and my breakfast. And... But if I go, I'll also get to see a lot of people that I love and care for. And I'll get to sing some songs that I really enjoy. And I'll feel good usually afterward because of those connections. And you end up deciding based on your complicated equations that it's worth showing up to church that morning. And so you go. And some of you, it may be a little bit harder than others, right? Piling the kids into the van is a tough challenge, but you get here. You pull into the parking lot, and it's a beautiful day. Mid-70s and sunny. It's, you remember, this is why I live in Phoenix, right? It's not those summer months. This, this is the reason I live here. You get out of the car, and you're expecting to see another lovely face at the connect table, as there always is on Sunday mornings, right? A lovely, smiling face waiting to greet you. But there isn't one. Instead, Gabby Gustafson is waiting outside for you. And Gabby Gustafson doesn't have a smile on her face. She's actually sweating. She's got a megaphone in her hands. It's very clear that she's been shouting some things for a little while. This is what she's been shouting. Don't trust the deceptive words that you're going to sing or pray or hear in that room this morning. Before you do any of your religious tasks to feel better about yourself, consider your own life. Are you caring for the needy? Have you prioritized the widow and the orphan? Only if you do those things does any of the religious stuff in there ever matter. So don't think so highly of yourself for coming to church today. Don't think that God can't see your compartmentalized religion. How would we feel if Gabby was waiting for us saying those words outside the space? We'd probably feel a few different things. One, we might be a little concerned for Gabby, because that seems kind of out of character for Gabby. It'd be a little surprising, right? She's sweet and delightful, and why is she yelling at me? That's kind of weird. We also might be a little bit annoyed. Who does she, who is she to say this to me, right? I put a lot of work in to come to church today. And I'm here and this is the right place to be. She can't say those words to me. And for some of us, it might lead to some conviction, some reflection. What if her words actually are meaningful? What if those are really speaking to my life right now? 
That's similar to what is happening in Jeremiah chapter 7 here. We learn that God has called Jeremiah to stand at the temple gate, which was an area not entirely unlike the door to Hope Women's Center, where we enter every Sunday. It was a place where most of the foot traffic to the worship space moved in and out. And so that meant that if you were coming to the temple to worship, you walked through the temple gate. He was speaking to every person who attended worship, but not only was he speaking to them. The temple gate was also likely within earshot of the priests who were conducting temple ceremonies, doing all of their professional, professional religious things. So they could hear the words of Jeremiah. He wasn't just calling out the worshipers. He was calling out the ones who led worship. Gabby wouldn't just call you all out. She'd be calling me out, too, from where she stood outside. So Jeremiah's message is something that would have offended everyone involved in the whole thing. It's undermining the whole of the status quo of the religion of that day. But why, right? Because isn't it a good thing when people come into a religious space? Isn't that good? Shouldn't we want crowds and crowds of people pouring in through our gates, through our doors, to our services? Isn't that a sign of health? What's wrong with Jeremiah? What's he, what's he doing here? What's the point of calling this out? Well, knowing his context can help us see what he might be doing. See, he preaches this sermon during a transitional time in Israel's history. See, Jeremiah was born, the start of his life, under King Manasseh, who was one of the worst, if not the worst, Israelite king that existed in their history. He was utterly depraved and corrupt, and he made that depravity and corruption a staple of the temple, a staple of the worship spaces at that time. He instituted the celebration and worship of multiple gods, and he brought Things like dark magic and well, elevated senses of power and wealth and unhealthy sexual practices, all of that was commonplace in the temple under Manasseh. At one point, he even placed his own son on the altar and sacrificed his son to a foreign god. And anyone who disagreed with him, anyone who critiqued his actions, he made sure to swiftly get rid of. It's actually quite possible, many scholars think, that Manasseh was the one who sliced the prophet Isaiah in half because of his opposition to all of this temple corruption. So that's the world that Jeremiah grew up in. That's the world that he cut his teeth in, this obviously corrupt and uh, unholy religious and social space. But as he got older, something happened. Reform came. Another king named Josiah saw all of this corruption and it grieved him. And so he decided to make sweeping reforms all through the religious institutions. He got rid of all those foreign gods. He got rid of all those evil practices. And, well, temple worship was restored to how it should have been. People were saying the right words, singing the right things, articulating the right messages. Religion was back on track. But Jeremiah saw something underneath that reform. See, we learn in chapter one of Jeremiah that he was uh, the son of a priest. So he was a preacher's kid. And any of you that know preacher's kids, you know that they can see right through any facade. If you are a preacher's kid, you know that even well, even more so. Preachers' kids have this ability to pierce through religious productions because they see the lives of the preachers behind the scenes. They know whether these people are really living what they're preaching. And Jeremiah had a keen eye for this. And he saw that while the reform of Jeremiah caused great crowds of people to show up and say all the right words and sing all the right things, they weren't really emphasizing it in their lives. They were living hypocritical lives. They were walking into their religious spaces, doing their religious things, and then walking out and practicing blatant injustice. That's why he calls out the particular phrase that he does here. You might have caught it. He says, do not trust the deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Many scholars think that that was likely a chant that was used in Jeremiah's day. 
that that chant was not dissimilar to us saying creeds or the Lord's Prayer every week. These people were taking solace in their religious cliches, the things that they say to make themselves feel good, make themselves feel like they're following God rightly. All the while, they leave and neglect God, neglect God's priorities, neglect God's character. And the reality is, friends, repeating religious cliches, reciting things, singing songs in here, none of those things have the power to make you into a God-following person on their own. Religious repetition doesn't have that power for us. And I think we intuitively know this. We understand it. Think about it. If you started barking every day for five minutes, every day, consistently barking, would that make you a dog? No, right? If you start saying to a friend, I love you, I love you, I love you, over and over and over, repeating the same phrases, does that mean you love them? Not if you're not embodying it. You don't become a skilled lover of people simply by saying, I love you. Those words have to be connected to life, to action, to embodiment, for them to mean anything. And it's the same thing with all of our religious phrases, all of our cliches, all the things we repeat in here in our ceremonies. That's what Jeremiah's sermon is all about. Worship without justice isn't worship. And these people have assumed for a long time that doing the right religious thing is actually what God wants us to do. Jeremiah is saying loud and clear that none of those religious reforms have actually been about religion themselves at all. They've actually been about forming the character of the people who are in those spaces. That was the whole point of the temple. It was supposed to be this place of formation where you come in and learn about who God is and who you are and then you leave a changed person. But these people had turned that space into a den of robbers, Jeremiah says. He's using a relevant metaphor that would have made sense to his audience. Around Jerusalem, there are hills and mountains with a lot of rocks and cracks and crevices that create caves. And many times, thieves would run into Jerusalem, steal things from Jerusalem, and then retreat to these caves so they could be safe. Those dens of robbers were ways for them to commit injustice and then find a safe place to return to. Jeremiah is saying that the people have made religion into the same thing. They're running around stealing and murdering and lying and cheating and worshiping the wrong things in the wrong ways at the wrong times. And they're showing up to the temple like everything's just fine. That God doesn't see all the ways that they've neglected his character. They were living lives that were religiously impeccable and morally bankrupt. They had managed to separate religion from the rest of their lives and use it as a cover-up for the fact that they weren't really embodying God's love to their neighbors. Worship without justice isn't worship. And worst of all, they don't even seem to recognize it. Because the religion looks so good. The productions look so good. The words are so good. They don't notice this. That's what religion has the power to do to us. It can blind us to the rest of our lives. Now, this never happens in the church today for us, right? We're way better than this. We've understood how religion can do this. We're not religiously hypocritical, right? You guys, the same message that Jeremiah had for the people of his time persists for us today. And anytime we enter a religious space, we should remember his words. Because the church is never in more danger than when multitudes of people show up, flow through its doors, chanting the right religious phrases. Because those things can be blinders to life outside these doors. We can start to buy into a faith of religiosity where religious excellence blinds us to truly living with and for God. It creates this echo chamber for us of religious speech, religious practice. And it produces a life that appears one way but fails to embody God's love and justice and peace in other ways. 
There was a study done recently by uh, the seminary at Princeton University. Uh, and at Princeton, they uh, assigned many of their theology students a sermon on the Good Samaritan. You had to preach a sermon on the Good Samaritan. You might remember this story. It's about a man who is deeply harmed on the roadside. A couple fancy religious people pass him by. And then, well, one man comes and helps him. And that man is actually the last one you'd expect in the story. And we're supposed to see ourselves and supposed to see Jesus and supposed to find real significance in how we ought to live in the character of God in that story. And so these students, they're preparing their sermons in their dorm rooms, and then the day comes to preach them, and they have to walk across campus to their lecture halls. But on the way, the seminary planted a man in their path. The man was groaning. They had even some fake blood. He was curled up on the ground. And without exception, every single student walked right by that man and preached their sermon. Everyone. These are the people who are supposed to be the leaders, the formative forces for us as followers of Jesus, and they neglect caring for God's people and God's priorities because they've got religious blinders on. The sermon was more important to them, which is so deeply ironic. The whole point of the sermon is that you go out and live more like Jesus. And they're going to preach the sermon, meanwhile neglecting living like Jesus. This is what religion can do to us. Worship without justice isn't worship. And our American church structures don't often help this tendency that religion has in our lives. See, in the U.S., we spend expensive time and energy and money on our religious productions. We really love big shows. So we try to cater our churches using marketing and branding strategies to see, well, what consumeristic things will bring more people in? We spend hours and hours improving our religious shows with lighting and smoke machines and music and sound and the like. I know numerous churches who have spent tens of millions of dollars improving an organ in their church space. I know other churches who have spent dozens of thousands of dollars every year on cookies to make sure that people feel comfortable coming into their church. They actually spent a few months debating whether to reduce that cookie budget or not. We love our religious spaces. We love our religious productions. But when those things become the emphasis, it's going to train us as the church to spend more of our time focusing on all of the show and less of our time on embodying the love of God out there. It disciples us, friends. It's subtle, but we don't notice it. When we emphasize production so heavily, when we emphasize our worship services so heavily, it can often make us lose sight of the real priorities of faith. Think about it. When we, in our culture, typically leave a church service, what are the two questions we ask ourselves? Did we like the sermon? Did we like the music? Those are the primary questions that we ask. Do we like the sermon? Do we like the music? Do we like the religious production? And if we did, we stick around. If we didn't, we don't stick around. It's all about the production. It's not about how that church community empowered me to live like Jesus. It's not about whether that church community is providing the opportunities to grow in my relationship with Jesus. Did I like consuming those things? We've been discipled into focusing on religious production and neglecting the real, real weighty matters of faith. And the results in our day are just as catastrophic as they were in Jeremiah's day. According to recent studies, evangelical Christians are statistically just as likely to divorce their spouses as non-Christians, just as likely to abuse their significant others as non-Christians, and just as likely, if not more likely, to exhibit racist tendencies towards their neighbors. There's an author named Ron Side who brings this up in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. He says, whether the issue is marriage and sexuality or morality and care for the poor, the data suggests that in many crucial areas, evangelical Christians are not living any differently than their unbelieving neighbors. 
Because the church today has fallen prey to the same issues as the temple in Jeremiah's day. When we make religion the end game and the building up of our religious structures the goal, rather than the mercy and the love and the justice of God, it leads us to hypocrisy. It leads us to undermine the whole basis of our faith because worship without justice isn't worship. That's why the biblical prophet Amos writes these words. These are words of God to the people of Israel. He says, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You guys, if our worship of Jesus doesn't lead us to become more like Jesus, it's a fraud. If our worship of Jesus doesn't lead us to become more like Jesus, it's a fraud. And when the witnesses to the message of Jesus don't look and sound and act like him, then Jesus is going to cease to matter out there in the world at all. We're just as captive to this in our day, and we have to be really careful when we enter these religious spaces. But Jeremiah doesn't stop there. Jordan prayed on hope a little bit earlier, and Jeremiah does give a note of hope in this passage. After calling this religiosity out, he points towards the solution. He says, this is what true faith, true worship, true religion looks like. He reminds the people that if they act justly to one another, if they care for the orphan and the widow and the immigrant, they will find themselves dwelling with God again. God's presence will be near to them. And those three categories, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant, those are the most vulnerable populations in that time and in many ways are still the most vulnerable populations for us today. These are people who have no power, no uh, authority, no one else to care for them. Jeremiah is revealing something critical to us here, friends. That our religious practices are always a means to a different end. Our religious practices are always a means to a different end. Singing our songs is never the end game. Serving the poor and the needy is. Reading our Bibles is never the end game. Receiving forgiveness in Jesus and extending that forgiveness to others is the end game. Believing the right intellectual ideas, affirming the right theological principles is never the end game. Applying those principles in love of God and love of neighbor is. The Bible is not about the right information. It's about transformation in our lives. That's why in 1 John we hear these words. Whoever says, I abide in him, meaning I abide in Jesus, ought to walk as Jesus walked. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk as Jesus walked. And that's one primary reason that we think it's really important here at Midtown to meet in the space we meet in. Because we literally can't enter this place without being reminded of the importance of justice, without being reminded of the importance of caring for the poor and the needy, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. Those are the people that get served every week here. We want to remind ourselves when we worship, we're not just singing songs for our nice service here, we're singing songs so that we go out into the week and care for the very people that get cared for in this space all the time. We never want anyone to just come to Midtown because they love the great religious productions. I love Samson. He's an incredible musician, and I love worship. I was tearing up in worship today. But I know that I don't come to church simply for Samson to sing songs, for me to sing songs to feel good and then leave. I come and get teary-eyed because it sends me out there to love my neighbors better. That's the whole point. We want people to love Midtown because of how they've been empowered to follow Jesus, 
the ways that we're working together as a community of people to more healthily embody his love and justice and mercy in the world. Because worship without justice is important. It's grandiose religiosity that leads to hypocrisy. Friends, everything we do here, everything we do is towards the end of receiving the love and grace of Jesus and extending that love and grace to the world so that all things might be transformed. That's the whole point of any of this. Being with Jesus in here leads us to do what Jesus did out there. Last year, uh, Emily and I went on a, a trip to Hawaii to celebrate our five years of marriage together. And there was one particular adventure on this trip that involved us off-roading to summit the tallest peak on the Big Island, which was Mauna Kea. That's over 14,000 feet, and we could actually drive a Jeep up to the top, but it sits above the clouds. It's amazing, you see for hundreds of miles, it's a really beautiful spot. So we rented a Jeep and we did some researching to prepare for the trip to make sure we were going in rightly, and we learned an important detail. As you're climbing the mountain, you have to stop at the visitor center on the way up because you're moving from sea level to 14,000 feet in like 30 minutes. And so your body needs time to acclimatize or else the lower amounts of oxygen at the peak might actually give you some sickness or worse things. So we're driving up and we stopped at this visitor's center on the way to the peak. And we spent about 30, 40 minutes there. And we actually, in that visitor center, learned a ton about the mountain. We learned about its history. We learned it's the best views from the top when we get there. We learned strategies on how to best drive up. We saw pictures and 3D models and videos, a ton of detail. If you were to quiz us at the visitor center on the mountain, we'd probably pass with flying colors. We learned everything we needed to know about the mountain. Now, if Emily and I just decided at the visitor center, you know what? We know the mountain. We don't need, we don't need to keep going. We could just head down, down, right? I've seen pictures, I've seen videos, I've got 3D models. I know everything there is to know about this mountain. Would we really have visited Mount Achaia? Not really, right? We didn't really experience it. We, we dabbled in it a little bit. We understood some ideas about it, but we didn't experience what it's like to be on the peak. But if we had just skipped right past the visitor center and didn't stop and went straight to the mountain, we probably would have gotten hurt. We would have had some altitude sickness. We may have had some ill-prepared driving. I had never driven up a 14,000-foot mountain before. It's really steep. I needed some tips at the visitor center. We didn't know the weather conditions before we stopped there, which can change very quickly at that altitude. So stopping there was essential for us. You guys, no person who's truly committed to experiencing the mountain will show up for the visitor center. Because that's not the point. The visitor center is a means to an end. But no person who's truly wise will skip right past the visitor center. And the stuff we do in church on Sundays and in our groups throughout the week is the visitor center. And those are places that we learn about the adventure of following God. We study the trails, we ask about the contours, we get encouraged and equipped and prepare for life on the mountain. And all of that helps make us better climbers. Those are essential things. But those visitor center aren't the mountain themselves. They're a stop along the way and they're designed to get us going out there into the world, onto the mountain in love and service and in care. Friends, no person who is truly committed to experiencing and embodying God's love and grace shows up to church just for the religious practices. And no person who is truly wise will skip right past them. Y'all, Jesus is already on the mountain. He's out there. He's beckoning each and every one of us to join. It's a mountain of love and life and restoration and redemption and hope and grace. And he's calling each of us to join him in the different contours and the different trails there. So where is he calling you? 
Is it in the lives of women here at this center? Is it in the life of that single mom who lives a few doors down that seems like she's always struggling with groceries getting up to her door? Is it in maybe considering finally what you might do for refugees or immigrants or those who are in need in the city? Is it in serving meals to the homeless? Is it in partnering with South Scottsdale Presbyterian and serving there on Monday evenings to help care for our neighbors experiencing homelessness? Is it just learning the story of that one coworker who seems to be carrying a lot of weight? Is it emphasizing loving them, bringing them a meal in a hard season? We can go on and on and on, friends. The mountain is expansive and it's beautiful. It's life-changing, it's transformative. It's greater than anything else that we'd otherwise experience, but it needs to be a mountain that we climb, not a mountain that we just learn about, not a mountain that we just spend time in the visitor center referring to and then walking back down to sea level. So let's leave here transformed by what Jesus has done in us, in the world around us. Let's leave here as people who are listening actively for his call to us to join him out there. Let's walk together to those most in need, to those who are most vulnerable around us, because when we do that, we will find Jesus waiting for us there. We'll find his presence, his life waiting for us. When we do, we will find true worship, worship filled with justice. Worship filled with care. Worship filled with mercy. That's what it means, friends, to follow Jesus. That's what it means to participate with God. Would we join him today and this week on the mountain? Let's pray.